Before we begin, if you want to join our growing group of supporters and give $5, 10 or $20 a month to help make the show even better, you can sign up to the Harder Reports Patreon right now and get exclusive access to full unedited interviews with guests. That's the Harder Reports Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Harder Report. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Danny Brzezowski who's running for office in Illinois' 16th Congressional District. Danny Brzezowski, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, I appreciate it. You're running against a four-term Republican incumbent. Why did you decide to run for office? What made you say, do you know what? I'm taking this go and I'm going to win. Well, so it's a couple of things. Um, so I grew up all over the place. My dad uh, was in the army when I was a kid. He was actually in the service for 25 years. He's a Gulf War veteran. And so I grew up on army bases all over the world. But we moved here to the middle of this big district, which is just west of the Chicago suburbs in the late 90s when I was a young teenager. And for me, the thing that was most powerful about that experience, first of living on army bases all over and then moving to this town of 10,000 people in the middle of Northern Illinois was a really strong sense of community. It's something I grew up believing was kind of unique to a military environment and was kind of gratified to learn even at 13 years old that it existed everywhere. And it just became kind of thematic for me. I, I realized early on that it was that sense of community, the ability to rely on one's neighbors, that sort of sense of solidarity, the idea that we're all in this together, that those things were particularly meaningful for my family. And it became kind of the driving force for my entire career. So I worked in nonprofits for about 15 years. I served on essentially every civic and philanthropic board that would have me. Uh, I owned a small business that was a community center here in my hometown. And I decided to run for Congress because my family is one of those military families that people often hear or read about in the States where we had we were on food stamps. So we lived in trailers when I was really little. When we first came to Illinois, we had a rental property. My mom and dad didn't purchase their first home until I was fully grown and, and out of the house. Um, and when we first came to Illinois, had a rental property but couldn't afford to heat it. And so we all five slept together in the living room all winter long. And as I made this career, kind of cobbled together this career out of helping other people and trying to lift my community up, I realized that not only were my family's struggles not unique, but the things that had been difficult for us were getting harder for other people, not easier. And as I got steadily more invested in politics here in the state of Illinois, so I serve as party chair for LaSalle County, um, I saw my opponent, Republican incumbent Adam Kinzinger, take vote after vote against the people I was trying to help, literally as I was trying to help them. You know, he's voted against women and communities of color and queer folks and veterans and farmers and small business owners. Um, he's just, he's voted against so many people and he's voted against essentially everyone who lives in this district, you know, the entire middle class, anybody with a pre-existing condition and the list just keeps going on and on. And that seems like such a tremendous injustice. And I consider myself a patriot in so many ways, right? I grew up in a military environment. I so value the idea of democracy. I so value what I think this country can be and what we have unfortunately gotten away from. And one of the really beautiful things about democracy is it's the exact solution to a problem like this. When you have a, you know, frankly, a crappy representative, you elect someone else. 
And so I'm running for Congress to give the people of this district and people like them, people like my family, all over this country, the kind of fighting chance they deserve and the kind of representation who's going to stop at nothing until they get it. As someone who's grown up in that area, what do you think is the key issue that people really want a representative to be fighting for them on, the, the current incumbent in particular, but potentially just individuals who've represented the area for, for decades have failed to address? So I think it's, so I, I take that question in kind of two veins, because there's the practical sort of platform stuff, right? And for us, that's, you know, it's the economy, right? Jobs, wages, it's healthcare for sure. So people super concerned about their access to healthcare, very concerned about the rising cost of prescription drugs and our legislative unwillingness to address this problem. Um, it's also climate, which I think this district in particular is a really interesting one to talk about climate because for a long time, places like this, these sort of big kind of rural districts, and this district is pretty mixed. There's some metropolitan areas, exurbs, suburbs, and some rural areas. So it's a really interesting place to live. It's an interesting place to run. It's an interesting place to kind of think through something about climate because it affects each of those communities in a slightly different way. But I think here we've been we've been relatively reluctant to address the climate crisis head on, particularly with our more rural voters. And it's a real mistake. Um, you know, farmers know that climate change is real, right? They they see it, they feel it, they live it uh, in a way that I think a lot of other people just don't in, you know, in that sort of very tangible, practical, immediate way. And so we've gotten some traction with our voters in the agriculture community, in part because that is my community. So I don't farm, but my, you know, my extended family farms, friends, our neighbors, right? It's cornfields and cows outside my, my property in the back. Um, and so I sort of am deeply entrenched in this farming community and have a real understanding of some of the nuances that, for example, climate change creates here. But I think the other thing that really uh, that is on the minds of so many constituents in districts like this one, and particularly here in Illinois 16, where we have a representative who's become kind of notorious for absenteeism, in addition to his terrible voting record, which demonstrates a, you know, his tremendous inability to sort of bridge the gap to, to talk to the issues that are so important to the people here. It's this, it's this idea that, you know, we have so many politicians who are just patently unwilling to do the job of representing their constituents. So what we have here in my opponent is someone who has become beholden to big corporate donors, who's demonstrated a real disinterest in the things that are concerning to the people who live here, um, and who's really just become complacent. He has taken for granted his constituents. He has taken for granted that he'll have his seat in perpetuity or for as long as he wants it. Um, that's that's not democracy, right? No part of that is democracy, it's corruption. And call me idealistic, but I don't think it needs to be that way. And our campaign is really demonstrating that that's the case. You know, we have gotten this groundswell of support from volunteers and, you know, and others in the district and also from neighboring districts, people who are really excited about the movement here, really excited about the sort of mission of this campaign and my candidacy, what what we genuinely believe we can do in this district and what that can do for the people of Illinois 16. And it's getting a lot of people excited. And so I think what we're demonstrating is that the exact opposite of what my opponent has long held to be true, right? That you win in a district like this by leaning into this sort of nastiness, corruption, corporate donors. Um, 
we're demonstrating that the exact opposite is true, right? We've got something like, I don't know, 3,000 individual donors all across the country, people who are getting really excited about investing in a campaign that is as authentic and transparent and accessible as this one is. One of the ways that Republican incumbents like Representative Kinzinger have ensured that they can feel comfortable in the seat that they're in without fear of being defeated by a challenger such as yourself is by launching an assault on voting rights. It's something that Republicans have really focused on and stepped up efforts on in the last few years. And you've publicly backed the 2018 For the People Act, which would expand voting rights. It would also limit partisan gerrymandering. But that's been blocked by the Republican-controlled Senate. We've seen Mitch McConnell, who proudly touts how many bills that have been passed by the House He sits on his desk and refuses to even let be debated on the floor of the Senate. What would you be looking to do? Obviously, the support for the People Act would be a first step. But what would you do to ensure that we can expand democracy, but also stop this assault on voting rights, this gerrymandering that makes elections that are supposed to be democratic, undemocratic walkovers for the incumbents? Yeah, so it's so many things, right? So it's definitely ending gerrymandering. It is abolishing the Electoral College. So I evaluate decisions based on my values, right? So I sort of have my my convictions are, are values-based. And I think that there's something unusual about this in American political discourse, because I think often we choose to elect people whom we perceive to be really kind of immovable, right? We elect people who adhere to their convictions with this ferocity that, you know, I respect, right? I absolutely do. But I think it makes it really difficult for people to evolve, for people to listen in a way that's sincere. Um, so So I think coming at the work of politics from that perspective is, first of all, I think that's that's really valuable and I think it's unique. Um, but in addition to that, you know, there are the For the People Act covers a number of these things. To point to Mitch McConnell is exactly right, because Mitch McConnell himself is standing in the way. You cite these bills that are sitting on his desk. Hundreds of them, literally hundreds of them are bipartisan bills. These are bills that have support in both parties. And so for Mitch McConnell to be such an obstacle to democracy is incredibly problematic. And I am hopeful that he is no longer in his position come November. Um, so I think, it, you know, it's it's a handful of things. It's all of these legislative mechanisms that we talk about in the For the People Act and kind of related to that. I talk a lot about my top priority for this campaign and for my service in Congress when I'm elected. I talk a lot about my number one priority being addressing money in politics. And it's because, again, you know, money in politics has so significantly corrupted the integrity of our democracy. It is almost unrecognizable. And the sort of framing of campaigns, the framing of public service for so many of us, particularly at the federal level, though it's true at the state level to some degree as well, and and even at the local level in some places, you end up as a representative, you end up spending so much time and energy courting donors that it really keeps you away from doing the kind of direct service, the the real listening that's so necessary with your constituents um, and engaging with them in the ways that really give you the context to be an effective public servant. We've compromised the not just our democracy, we've compromised the integrity of our public servants by forcing them into this mindset of having to solicit donations constantly, to be constantly in a cycle of 
you know, campaigning for re-election. And that starts for so many immediately once they're elected. Would you support the democracy dollar idea where essentially removing corporate influence on politics, but giving a stronger ability of every voter in the district to have their say on who they think should be their representative? Yeah, so I love publicly financed elections, and I think it's I think it is a really important way. So this is the value that I sort of you know consider policies up against, right? The value is restoring power to the people, and insofar as we are able to do that, I will support just about anything that puts us in a position of giving power back to the people. That's what democracy is. That's what we know works. That's how we know that the interests of vulnerable communities are centered in our political agendas. It's how we know that voices are not silenced. It's how we know that you know people who have been oppressed or marginalized or otherwise left behind, disenfranchised, it's how we know that those people have the kind of say they need to feel like they are a part of the electoral process. And we need them. We need those people. When you talk about restoring power to the people, we've seen that over the last 30 years, there has only been one Republican presidential candidate who's won the popular vote mm-hmm. and been elected, which was George W. Bush in 2004, George W. Bush in 2000, and then also Donald Trump, obviously, in 2016. Failed to win the popular vote, but they were still elected president. You've declared that, quote, the Electoral College has no place in our modern democracy. And we've already seen Illinois take that step to sign the national popular vote into state compact, which would see Illinois' electoral votes go to the winner of the national popular vote once enough states have also supported the same legislation to reach that 270 vote threshold. How important a step do you see that as being? But also, given the resistance we've seen to voting reform, how realistic do you think it is getting that across the line? Yeah, so it's an interesting question, something that I've given a lot of thought to. So our campaign is for abolishing the Electoral College. And so there are kind of two tacks that we can take here, right? So we can take the sort of legislative, congressional, this federal approach. But to point to the National Popular Vote Compact is really, really smart because we're actually pretty close. So I don't know how closely you've looked at the numbers, but I don't remember what the number of states is. But so many states have passed that we're pretty close. We're coming up against that 270 number. And as soon as that happens, that national popular that national popular vote compact goes into effect. And we've effectively abolished the Electoral College via this workaround mechanism. You know, it's a real shame that we have to be in a position where we've got to do these kind of workarounds. We talk about it with Citizens United, right, this disastrous Supreme Court decision um, and how ending Citizens United, uh, you know, sort of addressing it head on becomes this really kind of unwieldy, extraordinarily difficult, complex, bureaucratic process um, that seems extraordinarily daunting and practically much more difficult than workarounds. And so that's why we talk about some of the things that are in the in the um, For the People Act and some of the other legislative mechanisms we might employ to get at what the real problem is there. And it's the same thing with abolishing Electoral College, right? We have we have the way to kind of address it head on, which seems like it's going to be a steep hill to climb. And listen, this is not to suggest that I am unwilling to climb steep hills. I climb them all. I will charge every single steep hill. You know, they say pick a, you know, pick a hill to die on. And I always say I will die on every single one of them. Um, And for me, those sort of alternative, the alternative methodology, right? How do we address what the actual problem is here in cases where it is more 
practical or more pragmatic to come at an issue kind of from the side, I'm absolutely willing to do that. I also think that that's a real opportunity for coalition building, which I always say is my superpower. Um, and I think it's an it's an opportunity to do that because what you end up, so in, in the case of the Electoral College, what you end up doing is sort of creating this coalition of not just states, but state leadership, right? Governors and, you know, state legislatures and the people of those states whom you know adhere to the same set of values, right? We have this, we have the same goals. Um, and I think that's something that's really, really powerful. Just on the note of how close it is, there is, including the states that have signed up to the national popular vote and state compact, and those where it's pending, waiting, formal, signing up to, there is only eight votes remaining before it hits that 270 mark. So there are plenty of states that could help hit that measure, really. Yeah, so that's, isn't, I mean, it's so cool to think about, right? So we talk about, I've been an organizer and an activist. And so what we talk about often at that kind of grassroots level is we talk about the value of down ballot races. We talk about how important it is to have competent, compassionate leadership at every level of government. And it's true that particularly in presidential years, people get really excited about the top of the ticket. They get excited about who they're going to vote for or more so lately, who they're going to vote against, right, for president. And we are, you know, we generate some excitement and enthusiasm for federal office, you know, for Senate and Congress, people get excited. You know, these races tend to be a little bit more high profile. We do stuff like this, go on podcasts and, you know, go in the media, we're on the news and all that good stuff that, you know, comes with kind of a level of celebrity. But I think what, what people often forget is the incredible power of people in state and local government. You know, the governor, for example, this is an extraordinarily important role. Your state representatives, particularly when you get to kind of a critical mass of people who are willing to make the kinds of changes that that we as constituents and voters know are necessary, right? I think there are so many people who sort of feel in a, in a very kind of emotional gut level way that the system has failed them. And they're right. The system is, in fact, designed to fail so many of us, right? The system in the United States of America, particularly right now, is designed to favor, you know, the wealthy and powerful. It's designed to favor the people for whom the system is already working. And and that leaves so many people behind. And I think so many of us recognize that the system is working against us, not for us. And that can feel so incredibly frustrating. But the recognition that change can happen. And I know this sounds a little bit corny, but I genuinely believe it to be true. Change can happen at so many different levels of government. You know, I live in a town where we're dealing with some pretty complex kind of thorny issues with our police right now. Um, and addressing that requires that we ensure that we've got a, a strong ally in our mayor, right? This is somebody who's elected with something like 2000 votes. This is a case where the power really is in the hands of the people, and it only requires that the people have a little bit of faith, faith enough to participate in the electoral process, and that we have people who are willing to step up and say, yes, I will run for this office, despite the fact that it's incredibly difficult work. It is in many ways very thankless, um, and uh, you know, and it, it requires a lot of sacrifices. But uh, you know, I think about my own call to service and the sort of circumstances that have led me here. And I know I'm not unique in this way. I know there are a lot of other people like me who feel like we can be better and they just don't have the tools and resources at their disposal to put themselves in the kind of position that I'm in. And I'm so incredibly grateful 
to all of the people who have put us here, who have sort of powered this groundswell, this, you know, kind of grassroots movement that has supported this campaign up until this point and will ultimately lead us to Congress, where I fully expect to be a part of some really significant changes. The issues you touched on there that exist in the criminal justice system is something where there's been an increased focus on in recent months. Voters have really turned their attention to meaningful steps that can be taken to create a more just system that treats people equally, regardless of race, background, people getting fed up with seeing video after video of particularly people who are minorities finding themselves the victims of police brutality. What changes would you be looking to fight for if elected to Congress to rectify a situation which the majority of Americans now believe is wildly out of control? Yeah, so I have been, so our campaign has always stood for criminal justice reform. And this is something that is kind of an emotional activator for me and always has been. This is partly because I came up in this kind of activist social justice warrior moment. And so thinking about criminal justice reform has always got me, uh, gotten me a little bit impassioned, um, which you have probably gathered is not super out of the ordinary for me. Um, so, uh, you know, we have stood for things like ending cash bail and, uh, you know, abolishing for-profit prisons. Since George Floyd's death at the end of May, you know, that was kind of the cataclysmic event that really changed the conversation here. The Black Lives Matter movement has been around for many years now, um, but really the elevation of the of the conversation, the sort of the public nature, and in fact, the very many people, and I've had personal conversations with people who have changed their minds on the topic of systemic racism, for example, does systemic racism exist? People who, my dad is one of them, who several months ago would have said, absolutely not. That's just, that's who we now kind of understand what that means. And they have kind of seen it play out in this very public way. And it's a real shame that it has taken so many tragedies, so much violence and suffering visited upon our communities of color and specifically the, the black community in the United States. It's, it's a real shame that it's taken that this much suffering to get to a point where we have this conversation more openly. And whereas you rightfully point out, the majority of Americans now recognize that we have a very serious problem. Um, for us, you know, when George Floyd was, was murdered at the end of May, what we've started to think about is how do we address the topic of public safety in earnest? How do we ensure that communities of color specifically, and I have always, you know, one of these values that I alluded to earlier has always been for me that I believe the role of the government is to serve the greater good and that doing so requires we center the interests of our most vulnerable communities. It means we put their agendas first because to lift up the greater good, you have to take care of the people who are suffering. Um, and so, you know, we, I think about what that means for public safety. How do we invest in our communities in a way that does some kind of justice to vulnerable communities. And it's being thoughtful about demilitarization of the police, right? Um, you know, the kind of military industrial complex, the way that, again, this is, it's money and it's corruption. The way resources are shuttled around, the way weapons specifically are shuttled around. I have been um, protesting and demonstrating in this community, I don't know, maybe seven or eight times since the end of May um, and have myself been confronted with police in riot gear. And it's, it's a sort of a very strange personal moment to be standing on the side of justice and to be facing off 
with police in riot gear. And it's wrong. And it's so obviously wrong when you're in that situation. I think it's, it feels so deeply uncomfortable because it's so obviously just wrong. It is morally bankrupt. Um, and so I think there, you know, there are opportunities for us to invest in, you know, more strategic ways in, in those communities where we know we have, we've failed, right? We have, we have really failed our people. When it comes to addressing those issues and looking at restructuring criminal justice in America, you've described the current movement to defund law enforcement as being, quote, based in justified anger and deep hurt. Do you think that that step defunding law enforcement would rectify that anger and hurt? Or do you think it's just a smaller step in a much wider process for criminal justice reform? So... I think that I think about this in kind of a similar way to how I think about so many things, right? So there are legislative steps we can take, and that's investing in our communities, right? It's it's demilitarization of the police, it's making sure that we're ending cash bail and abolishing for-profit prisons and all of that stuff, right? We need to we need to address all of those things. That's the systemic part of systemic racism. But that's not effective. It doesn't do the job if we're not also addressing racism in our hearts and our families and our communities. And so I would say absolutely, it's a step, but it requires that we do these things concurrently. Um, and all of the, you know, all of the policies, all of the bills that we pass in Congress, that's, that's great, but it doesn't actually do the job if we don't eliminate racism. And so we have to do those two things. And I would actually argue that the latter, the elimination of racism from our hearts and our minds and our communities, that's harder. That is harder than addressing the legislative mechanisms. And what we've seen over the course of the past you know, month and a half now, since George Floyd was killed, what we've seen is a shift in the public conversation. We've seen a shift in this conversation about racism. And I think that I mean, our polling data suggests that more people are on the side of justice and racial equality than ever before. But what has also happened is the sort of vocal minority, right? The the white supremacists, the, you know, groups like QAnon and the Proud Boys, these sort of far white, far right extremist groups whose foundational beliefs are kind of rooted in white supremacy, those voices have also gotten louder. And I think about this with some frequency, the what the this moment, this moment that feels so incredibly different. I'm 35. I've been engaged in politics for a while now. I have a lot of people I consider sort of advisors, right, who've been around for much longer than I have, who say this is this is out of the ordinary. This is like nothing we have ever experienced, this moment in American politics. And I think about kind of what what that means, what it, what is happening here. And what I believe it to be, and, and I know I'm not alone here, is it is the last gasp of a power structure that was built in a relatively fragile way, right? It is the last gasp of, you know, a, a patriarchy that prioritizes whiteness and maleness and heteronormativity and wealth. And it's the recognition that everyone else, right, all of us women and queer folks and all of the people of color and all of the, you know, seniors now who are suffering at the hands of a government that has ignored their needs and our disabled community. There are so many people who are 
sort of under the umbrella of vulnerable communities. It's most of us, right? Most of us are in some way being maligned by the federal government. And it's a recognition by the people in power that their grasp on that power is rather tenuous. And it's a realization from all of the rest of us that it takes banding together. It takes that coalition building to push back, to fight that system and to build something new. If we wish to address the issue of racism in America and address it in hearts and minds, one area that needs looking at is the treatment of immigrants, particularly over the last few years, where we've seen the Trump administration not just attempt to restrict immigrants from coming to the US, but in some cases, removing those who are already here in America, and not just who are recent immigrants, but people like DACA recipients who have spent almost their entire life in America. What can be done to protect these immigrants from the political forces that are seeking to target them for political gain here? Yeah, it's it's sort of outrageous when you you know when you think about it in the terms that you just laid out it seems so arbitrary and what's worse is that it's not in fact arbitrary right it is it is political and it's it, you know sort of rooted in that same racism that puts us you know that puts our black community at real risk um, we need comprehensive immigration reform, right? And when I say that, what I mean is that we need pathways to citizenship. So for so many people, you know, they come to this country and end up being undocumented because we we will not provide them with documentation. The process of being becoming a, a documented immigrant here in the states is incredibly arduous. It's expensive. It is largely inaccessible. It becomes very difficult to even sort of understand the steps that you need to take. Um, I sat down close to the start of this campaign with, there's a, a small city called Rockford in the northern part of the district. And I sat down with an immigration attorney, um, maybe, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 weeks into the campaign. And I said, I really want to understand. She's an activist. She's been to the, to the, to the southern border dozens of times. And I said, I really want to understand what's happening with the refugee crisis in particular, right? We know that we have this influx of people coming from countries south of the, of the American border. Talk me through, walk me through that process step by step. What is it to be a family coming from Guatemala, for example, and getting to the border? What, what happens? What does that look like? And so we sat together for about 90 minutes and she sort of walked me through and I just got goosebumps thinking about it because it is heartbreaking. It's so incredibly tragic. When I think about the kinds of quote humanitarian crises in you know all sorts of countries, right abroad, everywhere that the United States of America has used as you know sort of a, a reason to enter into a foreign conflict, right? The the excuses that we have come up with many of them are not as bad as the kind of suffering that the American government is visiting upon refugees from south of the border. That is so heartbreaking and the hypocrisy seems so obvious to me. This is another, immigration is another one of those emotional activators for me because it is, it's just staggering that we're in this position and that we've allowed it to continue. And in fact, you may know that maybe two weeks ago, as a direct result of the coronavirus pandemic and the effects, the consequences of, um, of the pandemic on 
children in particular being held in these ICE detention facilities, that some of them were closed down, that it took a global pandemic for these children to be released from essentially prisons is absolutely mind blowing to me that we live in a country that has allowed that to happen, that we have elected a president and an administration that has made this possible is a staggering indicator of how far we have fallen from the kind of country I believe the United States of America can and should be. Um, so the practical answer to your question is that our comprehensive immigration reform needs to include protections for dreamers. Of course, it needs to include, um, you know, abolishing ICE entirely. And it needs to include the creation of accessible, affordable pathways to citizenship for, for immigrants from anywhere. We've heard about the issues that you're running on. We've heard about why you're seeking to unseat your Republican opponent. And we've heard about what you'd do if you were elected to Congress, but what would be your closing pitch to listeners and voters in Illinois' 16th congressional district as to why you should be their next member of Congress? Yeah, so I think the thing that is perhaps most unique and important about this campaign is that probably what you have heard over the course of this interview is what sounds, and I think rightfully, <laughs> to so many people like earnestness. And I think that word earnest gets kind of a bad rap because the truth is that I am deeply sincere about my commitment to the people of this district. I so very badly wanna do right by the people here. And that level of commitment, that authenticity, I often say when I'm talking to persuadable voters that even if we disagree on nuances to solutions, they walk away from conversations with me being confident in two things. Number one, that we are identifying the same problems, which you absolutely cannot say of the incumbent of my opponent, Adam Kinzinger. He has no idea what the problems that plague the people of this district are. He's woefully out of touch and inadequate and inaccurate representative of the people here. And most of them get that. Most of them understand, I think, that Adam Kinzinger is doing a poor job of representing their needs. The other thing that they walk away from conversations with me being confident in is that even if we do disagree on the solutions to those problems that we've identified together, they know that they can trust that I'm going to Congress to fight for the things that I believe in my heart of hearts are in their best interest. And I think what we're doing, I think part of the reason there's so much enthusiasm for this campaign is because we are very sincerely restoring a little bit of trust. We're restoring a little bit of faith in our electoral process and in our elected officials and in our democracy. And that is incredibly powerful. And I don't take the responsibility lightly at all. It feels very weighty. It feels incredibly important, but I accept it wholeheartedly because I just genuinely want to help the people of this district. And so for listeners who are interested in getting involved, there are lots of ways to do that. In these, the days of digital organizing, we have volunteers all over the place. Um, so you can go to our website, which is dannyforillinois.com. It's D-A-N-I-F-O-R-I-L-L-I-N-O-I-S.com. Um, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at either Danny for Congress or Danny for Illinois. Just search either and they will pop up depending on which platform you're using. Um, we are always looking for volunteers. We're always looking for donors. This is a grassroots movement that is powered by small dollar donors. So $5, $10, $25, $2,800 if you've got it, you know, those contributions make a huge difference as we compete with the, you know, the incredible war chest that my opponent is sitting on that's stacked with, you know, fresh dollar bills from the NRA and the Coke industries and fossil fuel companies and big pharma. 
Danny Brzezowski, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That was Danny Brzezowski, who's running for office in Illinois' 16th Congressional District. You can find out more about her on Twitter at Danny for Congress or at DannyForIllinois.com. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe or recommend this podcast by submitting a review online and sharing it with friends and family. Thank you to this month's supporters on Patreon, Carolyn, Colin, Ibalashnikov, Janet, Jesse, Merrily, and Nikki, who helped to make this show even better. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>